We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sword Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1998's Dark City, directed by Alex Proyas and written by Proyas, Lem Dobbs, and David S. Goyer. Here's a clip. I've been looking through some of your old reports. It's an interesting case. Kind of make a man's career. Or break it. Yeah, I was on that case. And then what? What happened then, Eddie? Well, nothing happened, Frank. I've just been spending time in the subway, riding in circles, thinking in circles. There's no way out. I've been over every inch of this city. You're scaring your wife to death, Eddie. She's not my wife. I don't know who she is. I don't know who any of us are. What makes you say that? You think about the past much, Frank? How much is the next guy? See, I've been trying to remember things. Clearly remember things from my past. But the more I try to think back, the more it all starts to unravel. None of it seems real. It's like I've just been dreaming this life. And when I finally wake up, I'll be somebody else. Somebody totally different. You saw something, didn't you, Hetty? Something to do with the case. There is no case! There never was! It's all just a big joke! It's a joke! All right, that was a clip from this week's film, Dark City. Uh, released in 1998 and again directed and co-written by Alex Proyas along with Lem Dobbs and David S. Goyer. My name is Patrick Murphy. Joining me as always is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? I love this movie. So glad you chose it. Yeah, I had not seen it in a while, but I remember liking it and I had the, the DVD was staring at me. And yes, I still have DVDs and I still watch them. Um, I thought this would be a great one. I have the original DVD. Unfortunately, I do not have the director's cut, but still a good movie. Yeah, it'll be interesting comparing because I watched the director's cut. That's what I have. So I, and I think it sounds like Simon also maybe watched the director's cut. Uh, and here he is, Simon Howell. Yeah, I think that the uh, I think the director's cut is actually the one that's maybe easier to get a hold of now because it it got a, I guess a DVD release in two thousand eight, 
So that's it probably chances are if you're watching it in 2020, uh, the director's cut is the version that you're watching. But I mean, even that one is uh, well, well under two hours. So, you know, it's not yeah, a this is, situation. This is not a self-indulgent director's cut at all. <laughs> Minor changes, really. It's an additional 12 minutes. My DVD is so old. It's one of the DVDs in which the wide screen is on one side and the full screen's on the other side. So the actual... Hell yeah. Yeah, but the actual disc is disgusting. Like, there isn't even an image on the disc. It's just, like, this silver and gold disc. Those are the movies that you know the studio didn't give a fuck about. <laughs> what's, what's strange about it is the actual packaging is exactly like the DVD release for The Matrix. Because it's one of the DVDs which has the snap-on... Yeah, Warner Brothers used to do that uh, quite a bit because my my old DVD for Unforgiven, for The Matrix, uh, for Blade Runner, I believe. Um, yeah, they all have that kind of weird snap-on case that I hate. By the way, I think it's New Line <laughs> Cinema, though. Oh, yeah, maybe. Oh, yeah. this one's New Line. You're right. Uh, Dark City's yeah. New Line. I'm not sure who manufactures all the different d- versions of DVDs. Why some of them go with a shell case and some of them don't. But uh, hey, hey, DVD knows. manufacturers from the late '90s. Fuck you. <laughs> Get your acts together. Get some consistency going. We reviewed this way back in the day. We we did an entire special on the director. So I'm going to add the review at the end of this podcast because it featured me, Simon, and Al Cortina. It's only about 12 minutes because back then we used to review four movies in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I remember that, I'm just like, what the fuck were we thinking? That's very Siskel and Ebert of you guys. Um, That's true. We worked at an actual radio station. We had to take commercial breaks, so we would time each review to when we had to go to commercial break. We had easy access to films, also, which is you know, which is nice. But man, it was it was wild what we were doing. <laughs> it's a format that at least allows somebody to know whether or not you liked a movie or not. But that's that's pretty much all you can get out of it. Maybe one or two sentences that are that are meaningful. But it works. It's a format that has obviously worked for, for decades for, for two of Chicago's critics. All right. So I picked this movie, I have to say, because of The Empty Man. Because The Empty Man, I thought, was such an ambitious movie that I didn't understand any of. It reminded me a lot <laughs> of Dark City, which I really like because of its style. And I think it does. I, I'm not going to say it has a, a, a bad screenplay or anything like that. I think it's actually a pretty cool screenplay. But it's so ambitious and going for so many different things, so many characters, so many plot twists. And I I don't understand like half of what's going on, but I understand I do understand the other half, I think. Wait, you're talking uh, about this movie or this the movie, Empty Dark Man? City, yeah. There's a lot there's a lot of stuff going on here and that I'm not quite sure like what like why <laughs> any of it is happening. We can get into some of that if we want to, but that's what it, it reminded me of that movie. I, I like this movie more than I like The Empty Man, but uh, a lot more. I, I really think this is a great movie. So for, for anyone listening, just to give a few pointers, this movie reminds me of Terry Gilliam's Brazil, 12 Monkeys, the yeah. movies directed by Jean-Pierre Jouenet and Mark Caro, I think I pronounced his name right this time, um, The City of Lost Children, for example, and Delicatessen. It also reminds me of The Matrix, which was released one year after Dark City made by the same studio of which they actually recycled some of the sets and the props for the matrix. It was actually filmed in Australia too, like on the very same studio lot. Mm-hmm. It also of course reminds me of Fritz Lang because clearly Alex Proyas took inspiration 
from movies like Metropolis and I guess even like M. And of course, it's a neo-noir film noir. Neo-noir film noir. It's a sci-fi neo-noir. There That's a go. better way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of like logical things that I don't understand. And the ending is one of them <laughs> because it doesn't, again, it doesn't make sense. Although it, it could be a very human thing to do. And this movie is about exploring what, what it means to be human. Um, Every time I hear that, I think of white zombie. <laughs> you know the song more human than human. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because I, think yes. it, I think it came out around the same time, right in the nineties. And we had all of these movies like Memento and dark city and the Matrix, and so on and so forth, all these movies that explored the idea of what makes us human. And so Dark City tackles the very same question. It's sort of like it's a raison d'etre. It's the reason for it to exist. It's a film set in a city where there's no sun. It's shrouded in darkness. The main character himself wakes up naked in the bathtub. He's confused. He has no idea who he is, what his name is. He doesn't know anything about himself or his past. He's in the same position as us, the viewer, in the dark, so to speak. Sure, and there's a dead hooker in his uh, apartment that he has, which he doesn't remember killing. <laughs> Anyhow, so the main character here, John Murdoch, he has no memories. And for me, the movie, I think, I mean, I think it's pretty clear. It asks or questions if memories and the way we are raised define who we are. So if we were to switch our memories and implant new memories into our brain, would we become a different person and think differently? Right. To which the answer is probably, but not all the time. It's an interesting concept. And the movie, I feel like, honestly, I could have used another hour to this movie to, oh, to, to really fully ex explore. Oh, hell no. <laughs> hell no. <laughs> For once, give me a sci-fi sci movie that is comfortably under two hours and keep it that way. <laughs> you know you know there's a line in the movie where john murdoch says and this is like really early on before the movie really reveals what the city is and the whole mechanism behind how the city moves and, and reshapes itself but there's a line which he says i feel like i'm living someone else's nightmare have you guys ever had a dream or a nightmare that feels so real but yet not real like surreal because like, if you feel it, right? Let's say it's like uh, someone's chasing you with a knife and you actually feel scared in your dream. But then in your dream, you react or do something that you normally wouldn't do and you question why you would do it. That's like every one of my nightmares. <laughs> I'm always... <laughs> I always feel scared because I'm usually trying to... Somebody's usually trying to murder me. No, but and, I'll give you an example. Like, like, like. Okay, so someone's trying to murder you, but then, like, you think that you can't ever actually kill someone. Like, even if it's in self-defense, like maybe you think that you're just incapable of doing it, and you have a dream or a nightmare, and you actually kill someone. Well, usually I end up biting the bullet in my nightmares, but I do have a really good recurring one where I wake up in a house full of vampires, and every I'm in like a closet, and the first time I open the door, the vampire kills me. So then I'll wake up again. Then the whole thing will reset like Groundhog's Day. And I've been having this since I was a kid, so even before Groundhog's Day. The whole thing will reset. I'll open up, a, I'll wake up in that closet. But now I know that there'll be a vampire right outside the closet door. So I'll open the door and I will kill the vampire. I hope we have some <laughs> armchair psycho psychoanalysts uh, ready to email in and tell us what Patrick's specific problems are. So the whole dream basically me invo involves me trying to escape this house, and I have to die about maybe 20, 25 times before I can actually make it out of the house. And then I make it out of the house, and I wake up. And that's <laughs> it's a bloody, bloody nightmare, but... <laughs>
So I actually have the famous <laughs> reoccurring dream that millions of people have about you're standing at the top of a staircase and you jump and you never hit the ground. And every time you, you dream the same dream, the reoccurring dream, you think you're going to die because the fall is so steep, right? And I have it every single year, or I used to have it every single year, especially when I was a kid. And every year I would get closer and closer to the, hitting the ground. If you go on Reddit and you search this, Millions of people have had the same dream, and somehow they've linked it to playing video games. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if the vampire thing is is a video game thing. Speaking of vampires, the strangers are sort of like vampires. I mean, they are modeled after Nasferatu from the Fritz Lang movie. The physicality of them, like they don't necessarily have fangs, but their skin is pale and they're green, or not green, gray. And I don't know, they remind me of vampires. They also have this very slender look just like uh, Nosferatu did this kind of odd shape to their bodies where they're tall some of them are very tall and they that's just because they hired a bunch of like British actors who are all like really skinny you know the tall guys from Mad Max right the big tall guy from Mad Max is the big tall guy in this movie oh did not know that uh if if I had to describe Dark City to someone like to try to convince them to watch it I'd say that it's like set aside the whole neo-noir thing or sci-fi even I would just say it's one of those movies that seems to be uh, talking to a lot of films from the past and also seems to predict a lot of movies in the immediate future. Um, I would say like Donnie Darko, as we sort of discussed a few weeks ago, I think is another one of those movies from this period that was like kind of like the, the, the studio or people around it didn't really know what to do with, but like clearly was tapping into something in the zeitgeist. And Dark City is another one of those movies that um, you know, I, I, I was reading stuff about uh, Proyas trying to explain concepts from the film to potential producers or other people who would, who were going to get involved. And it always seems like it was such a trial for them. Like, oh, this is so complex. There's so much going on. But honestly, watching it now, it seems so straightforward, like compared to a lot of stuff, a lot of more convoluted films that came later. Um, and I don't know that the films that are more convoluted are better for being more convoluted. Like, I, th- I think this movie has a nice balance. That's interesting, because I still find it to be extremely, like, it's rushing so fast. I find this movie to be extremely quick-paced. And even though it is only 111, movies, uh, 111 minutes, they are moving very, very quickly from scene to scene. And there's a lot of cross-cutting, because they're trying to convey multiple ideas all at once, things happening. I find it, like, he he doesn't, this is... He got what he was aiming for, which was an ambiguous movie that that has a lot of concepts that don't really solve themselves, uh, which is fine, which is great, because that leaves you sort of thinking about the movie a lot. But it's Wait. interesting that you think that it's a straightforward movie. I guess the, the basic thread of the plot is, but I, th- I feel like a lot of the concepts that he explores are... Uh, I, I'm baffled theory. by this, Patrick, because I have like no open questions about anything in this movie. Is that right? <laughs> To me, it's completely settled. I just want to quickly jump in and say that the thing I always think of first when watching the movie within the first 30 minutes is how amazing the editing is and the rhythm and the tone and the pacing. The first 30 minutes of this movie are pitch perfect. It is my favorite 30 minutes of any film released in the 90s. I love the first 30 minutes. I I just I can't get over how fast it moves and how it it feeds us so much information so quickly. And I'm not referring to the original 
theatrical cut in which they pretty much explain what the movie is with the opening voiceover because i know in the director's cut they removed the voiceover but i'm just talking about how it feeds us so much information within 30 minutes like what it shows us even though there's very little dialogue or or um exposition and because like we do get a lot of exposition later especially with the doctor man like I just love the editing and also the music and the score and the suspense and the tone. And God, the first 30 minutes of this movie to me is beautiful, brilliant. And it's by far the best movie ever directed by Alex Prayant. Yeah, it's definitely what makes it, I think, is that it still retains some of that hard boiled detective movie nature but it's got it, it wastes no time in revealing the strangers the the aliens that live beneath the city uh, you'd think that in, in a different movie i think that would have been a mystery a big reveal at the end like they would have been these shadowy figures that you would have never known the detective or or uh, john murdoch would have never really known what these things are that are following them but nah he just goes right into it and they're just there there, there's much a part of the movies anything. There's no mystery uh, revolving around them, and I, I don't think that there's much of a mystery when it comes to them. I think there's the mysteries in this movie are what, how the movie tends to treat the experiment in general, and I think the the experiment is a is a lot of what I don't quite understand. Would have like would have liked to have explained more. Uh, this idea of transferring memories between people. It doesn't quite add up for me, <laughs> I guess. When evil telepathic aliens love each other very much. <laughs> it's like, okay, wait, if they transfer, it looks like they only transfer the memories of a few people in the city every night. But if somebody else in the city knew one of those people, their yeah, memory Patrick, of them that's called be... a plot hole. It's not, <laughs> it's not a, an, an, an ambiguous thing for you to figure out. I know, I know, but I kind of want to. And it's it's kind of like at the end, when we get to the end, and him and Je- the Jennifer Connelly character, it's like, okay, she's not the same person anymore. Why are you still obsessed? Like, <laughs> Okay, hold on a second. I think you're overthinking the film. I'm sure I'm totally overthinking, but there's a ton of moments for me like that. I can't help it. We clearly cannot comprehend the science or magic behind what they do because it's impossible to do it. So you just got to go with the flow. They they insert memories into the citizens who I assume they've abducted and kidnapped from the planet Earth, put into this city floating in outer space, and they only switch certain memories. Yep. No, not the entire. It's not. They don't. They wipe out all of the memories from the past of these people, recreate this new storyline, and and put them in whatever. Uh, a new position in life, be it like it could be a small change, like a, a job, or a big change, like someone becomes a murderer. But to actually, like, I, I know what you're saying because I thought about it for a brief second or two, and it was like, no, I can't think about this because if I do, I'm going to ruin the movie because I'm going to spend the whole entire movie obsessing over but, how does this actually work. So for me, it's not about like picking out the plot holes or oh, what did the movie do that might not be realistic. It's because I love the concept of. The, of of what they're trying to explore, which is what makes people human. Do you, do your memories make you, or is there some part of you that's actually completely separate from that, that will, that you'll still retain, even if you lost your memories. And I want that to be explored more. And so I like the idea of, of exploring the experiment a little bit more and getting really, really deep into the experiment. There is a surface. The experiment is a surface level thing in this movie. And that's what kind of frustrates me at times. Uh, I love this movie and I love the imagination of it. But when I say I could use another hour of it, it's because I like 
the idea, the concept so much that I actually want to dive deeper into it. And the movie doesn't have time to do that and still get its its plot machinations out of the Patrick. way. Like it's, <laughs> I don't want a 111-minute movie for this, Simon. I think it could go Gone with the Wind style. Maybe Patrick, you know what you're asking for. You know <laughs> what you're asking for. <laughs> Look, there's actual scientific experiments that inspired him to write this movie. There's, for example, and I don't remember the name of the experiment, but it was basically a scientist or a bunch of, a bunch of researchers took a bunch of students and they put them in a prison, has either prison guards or prison mates, like prisoners. And they wanted to see how they would react and how it would change their personalities. Yeah. Stanford Prison Experiment. Right. Thank you. But there's all of these ideas that he took, even Neuromancer, right? All of these like sci-fi movies that question that question memories and what makes uh, what makes humans human etc cetera, etc cetera. so in terms of like the actual scientific explanations i'm not a scientist but like i'm sure if you go ask someone who studies memories our memories and what we remember and how we remember it shape who we are right so like it's like it's kind of like that weird thing about you see a color and why do we see a color as orange or green or blue it's because our memories tell us it's orange green or blue well, it's also because of just a shared, we don't know that everybody sees the exact same thing that we do, but we all have this sort of shared language around something. We say that this is, the sky is blue. But so part of this is like, I, I want more out of this. Like the, there's, the movie has a lot of, uh, a lot of talk about this, but say the, this idea that the, me, that memories shape who we are, of course they do. But what happens when you take those away? Amnesiacs tend to, they're, there can be a, a mental break that happens when you don't have your memories because you don't have an identity anymore. And these aliens have taken memories away from these people. And one of the big recurring uh, motifs in the movie is not being able to remember anything that, about the past, any specifics about the past. Uh, it, William Hurt's character brings up that he knows that his mother gave him that accordion, but he can't remember when. He can't remember a specific about that. And he, it's so important to him that he questions, like, why would I not know that? And nobody can find the way to Shelby Beach, of course, which is the big, Shell, the big Shell one Beach. in there. Or Shell Beach, I'm sorry, not Shelby. Um, but I mean, Patrick. Patrick. Like, don't you First think, of all, be, before you cut in, don't you think that these people would go insane? Not like no, we take our memories for we take our memories for granted. These people don't have them anymore and they don't seem no. to realize it. Hold on. Hold on. The movie addresses this because in the movie, everyone who does snap out of their quote unquote coma, they can't handle it and they all commit suicide. It's, that's it's, not what I'm addressing, though, Rick. What I'm addressing is that when you can't remember, we all take for granted that we can remember the past. We do remember what we did yesterday in the daylight. These people never get to remember that. And I would have liked to have seen just a little more exploration as to like how that would really affect a person's brain when they can't even remember what they did yesterday. Patrick. Like they can't remember ever doing anything in the daylight. Okay. I get what you're saying, but it's only specific memories. But but yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying because when Patrick. they when they when they experiment on the the <laughs> residents, they still have memories of the past because they believe they are who they are for a reason. Yes, they, they... It, it switches every day like clockwork, and that I agree with you. People will go nuts, but whatever. It's a sci-fi movie. Go with it. Yes, Simon, cut in. <laughs> Patrick, you know what you're asking for, don't you? Have you I'm figured it out the, yet? You're asking for a fucking Christopher Nolan movie. 
I know, I know I'm walking a dangerous tightrope here <laughs> because I don't want that either. <laughs> Christopher Nolan made Memento two years later, and he says that all of his movies were inspired by Dark City. So, yes, you're correct. Yeah. yeah I'm not again, right. this isn't a... This isn't a criticism. It's me, my brain going insane because of all these things I want to see. I want to see more of William Hurt's character. I want to see more of Jennifer Connelly's character. I like these characters so much. You do I... realize if you were a character in this movie, you would be John Murdoch, right? Like, because the way your brain works, that's that's his problem. Like, John Murdoch is basically you. Because you're going to go into the city, and you're going to be like, none of this makes sense, and your brain's going right. to like, overreact. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> that is exactly it. I'd be going and I'd be like going frantic all over the place, demanding answers of everybody. I would also say to counter to counter Patrick, I think many people, and I think this is sort of like a maybe an accidental piece of social commentary in the film. I think a lot of people go through life and don't think about the past at all. I mean, like I go through major parts of life and I'm just like, there's like whole huge chunks of my past that I just don't think about because they're just not very interesting or useful to me. Uh, I think a lot of people are are just are are taken up with the drudgery of everyday life. Needs the opposite. I just can't remember. I have like the worst memory. Like people will always remind me of something I completely forgot about. Can I just talk about the ending? Because there's so much to say about this movie, but I need to address the ending really quick. And I know I'm skipping straight to the end, but. I think it kind of ties into this whole conversation. So at the end of the film, I think it has a really depressing ending. A lot of people think it's optimistic and a happy ending, and I do not agree. I, I think the very fact that the actual beach, Shell Beach, does not exist, it's a constructed memory, and he chooses to recreate these memories that were created for him that never actually existed, these places that never actually existed, I feel that that is really sad. His journey, I mean, his nightmare, I should say, doesn't really end. It's the only world he ever knew in this new city, in the the quote-unquote dark city. And so when he finally has control to recreate everything and do whatever he can, like he's pretty much God in the city, what does he do? He recreates the exact same city and he adds the exact same beach, which never existed, which was a constructive memory given to him by the strangers. So at first it might appear to be a happy ending, but it's such a tragic ending. And so in the end, this dude, John, is still in the dark, Simon. The sun might be shining. He has total control. He lacks imagination, soul, heart, and real memories that he lived. To me, that's depressing. It's a false memory. Hold on. (laughs) Hold on. I need to get this out because I swear (laughs) to God, it's so depressing. His wife is not even his wife. This movie is the origin story of, uh, like, I know that you just said Christopher Nolan was inspired to make movies by this movie, but I think it goes deeper than that. I think John Murdoch is Christopher Nolan because <laughs> after he, hear me out, he, he, he becomes God, AKA filmmaker, and uh, he can't think of anything to do except for literally make reality out of his literal dreams, which are just like implants from basically other movies. Uh, and, um, it's, it's really a tragic story about how a man with no imagination is given, uh, keys to control Hollywood. It's true. Like his imagination is based on the false memories that were injected into him by the strangers who, who they themselves have no quote unquote soul. At the end of the movie, he says, you were looking in the wrong place, meaning you were looking in my head. You should have been looking in the soul, not in the mind. But I'm like, no, they were actually looking in the right place because you have no imagination. So therefore you have no soul. People without imagination are like useless. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, hold on. There, there are people who have like a, a legitimate, uh, a legitimate like psychological issue where they can't, uh, they can't form images in their heads. I forget what the name of this is. Uh, so, which I guess could technically be uh, interpreted as not having an imagination. So, like, let's let's let, those people are valid. Um, <laughs> see, I, I get your interpretation of this being tragic. Um... And I probably I might even like Christopher Nolan a little bit better than you guys, even though I I dread every new Christopher Nolan release. Um, <laughs> I'm like a half and half with Nolan. Half of his stuff I can't stand, then the other half I really like. Um, well, that's because you overthink all movies. How could you enjoy a Christopher Nolan film? I, mean, I, I like half of them. I like the ones that does the Dunkirk, where there's nothing to really think about. Well, that's what I'm saying, right? You, you don't like Tenet, I guess. No, Tenet was Tenet was just like I don't even know what happened at the end of Tenet to tell you the truth, and I defy anybody to explain to me what happened at the end of Tenet. I don't think anybody knows. I, I also um, think it's funny, I, uh, Patrick, that you said that you like Jennifer Connelly's character because to yes. me the whole point of her character is that she isn't a character. So I I like that she struggles with like she doesn't know what she's supposed to be. They didn't implant her with much to to do with, and I think that kind of comes through in the performance. And maybe I'm just reading that into it because again, I get I get sucked into this movie right away, and I start coming up with my own stuff that I would like to see in this movie in this world. But one of the things is her character. I I see that is I see her character is very tragic because. Like everybody else, she doesn't. She isn't whoever she was supposed to be, whoever she originally was. She's somebody completely different now. And I feel like there is a little bit of struggle in there. Even when she's singing, she doesn't seem to be into it. Um, she's what, Whatever she's doing, she doesn't quite seem to be all there. And I don't know if this is something, again, that I'm reading into this or if this was on purpose in the performance. But she doesn't play a normal sort of like noir female in this regard. She doesn't play anything. She's not acting. It's tragic. I think that's the way she was directed to act. Like, like Simon said, she was directed to act like someone who's lost, who doesn't really feel like a real person. Because who is she? Is she Anna? Is she like, we don't know much about her character. We know nothing about her. Exactly. So, like, she's supposed to be sort of just this thing, like like a prop. A prop for John Murdoch so they can experiment on this specific person to see how changing his memories and his relationship to these people, in this case, the woman he loves will affect his decisions moving forward. Like her character is so empty. And it almost feels like, uh, and again, whether this was intentional or not, I couldn't say, and I haven't seen Proyas or any of the other screenwriters, by the way, we should quickly mention that the process of writing this movie was seemingly very tortured. And we mentioned there's three screenwriters involved. Um, I don't even, it seems like Alex Price's original script was literally just about a guy who thinks he might have killed somebody <laughs> and like the rest came later. Very confusing. His original script was, was inspired by the, what was it? The story from Plato about the cave. But yeah, he was trying to do it at, uh, a fir at first, a, a, just a, a detective story, but then it did turn into a, a, a sci-fi film. And the problem with the actual original script was that they all said, you can't film it, which we haven't even talked about the special effects yet. So they brought in uh, Goye and what was the other dude's name again? Lem Dobbs. And, yeah, exactly. And they basically did a few rewrites to not only please the studio producers, but to actually be able to shoot something with the specific budget of, I think it was like 30 to $40 million. Yeah, 20, 27 million, I think is what I saw, uh, which is also the exact amount it made more or less uh, uh, at the box office. But anyway, I was about to say, 
um, the emptiness of Jennifer Connelly's character almost feels like a meta statement about like, I don't know. She's really just playing the woman in this movie. Like you could literally just call her the woman and you wouldn't lose anything about her character. And uh, it, 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 no, I think it is depressing, but also it feels it's sort of in keeping with a lot of like sort of more damsel in distress type roles of, I want to say only in older Hollywood, but I mean, it still happens. She's not even a damsel in distress. She's an, she's a prisoner. Even at the end of the film, he, he does, he recreates the city. And even though I know technically he's like the hero of the movie, he ends up being no different than the actual strangers. Arguably Kiefer Sutherland is the hero of this movie. Right, exactly. I don't. I don't know if well, he's kind of the Morpheus, right? I guess if this was the Matrix, uh, if we made Matrix comparison, but I don't know that he that he, that uh, Rufus Sewell's character John Merrick is going to be a puppeteer controlling everybody. Keep in mind, like their memories are now fixed. So before they were getting him switched back and forth, and nobody really knew who they were. Now going forward, he doesn't have the ability to give new memories to people anymore because that was destroyed. Um. So everybody now is who they are. So he can, yeah, he can manipulate the environment. He created Shell Beach, and, and then he finds her out there looking, staring at the ocean. Um, I don't know how he made an atmosphere. That's a question I have for Alex Boyd. It's, uh, <laughs> again, with the question. <laughs> I mean, my, my, my question for the ending is like, so is he going to tell everyone what, what happened? Or is he just going to like Dr. Manhattan it and just like kind of kind of just walk around and pretend everything is normal you have to tell everyone because first of all where's the curious the somebody's bound to get curious right and they're going to try to find their way out it is going to be like the truman show you can't just hold everybody in the city forever somebody's going to want to leave eventually well then um, you just fling them into space well they're going to like go out in a boat and then the next thing you know they are going to fall into space <laughs> no but the way the movie ends he's not going to tell anybody like that, that like I, like i find it like i said i find it tragic because the actual city itself is basically the city that they were forced to live in now, like because they have no imagination to like be able to, or maybe it's not, maybe, maybe it's not even a problem of a lack of imagination, but it has to do with the science behind how they reconstruct the city with the big giant clocks. And I don't understand how it works because I'm not a stranger tuning, tuning. <laughs> right. But, but, but the thing is at the end of the movie, look like the bottom line is you're right, Patrick, he, he or nobody now has the power to recreate or change or, or, or reshape the memories of the people because they lost the the technology. What, what exactly got destroyed? The memories, the actual liquid memories, like the and the la the lab did. I don't, I'm not. I don't know if the the, the ship's propulsion rotor. It could still be traveling because he's able to remember. He's able to change the direction of the. He's able to to turn it so that it's facing the sun now or the nearest star. Yeah, or whatever that is. Alex Proyas has actually said the city is not. In, in one spot it's 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 traveling somewhere it's yeah they're going and, and for all we know like they're going to they're still on their way the, like to the whatever alien world that they're supposed to be going to see i see it as the people being finally set free they were prisoners and they still are prisoners on this little island but you know people who live on an island are also prisoners i guess so what's the difference we're all prisoners you know, on earth patrick if you lived on an island 500 years ago there wasn't much way of getting off it so you, you weren't much different than uh than these people here. So they're on their island and they're still able to live their lives out. They they now are free of that experimentation though. And so they can have consistency in their lives. And I don't see it as too tragic because they don't remember Earth at all. So if you can never remember where you came from, if you can never remember Earth and you just consider this place to be your home, then that place is your home. And there's nothing 
you'll never have that yearning to go back home. So it's not really tragic. I don't I don't see it in that way. Uh, for all we know, Patrick, they weren't even taken from Earth. They were taken from some other planet. And now Could this be. is like the origin story for Earth. Like, uh, go go ahead. Make very make possible. Yeah, very, very possible. You could be right, except the opening narration says they, 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 because you watch the director's cut and the opening narration of the theatrical cut, they do say they took it from our planet. Like they came to our world. Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah, but that could be anywhere. Oh, that's true. They don't say Earth, do they? But they say our, as in it, it, it implies that they are speaking for us, the viewer, and we are humans living on the planet Earth. Anyways, but that would have blown our mind in Dark City 2 when they arrived at Earth. <laughs> Did you notice how, uh, when it comes to visual motifs, I love the idea, and this might be like me sounding stupid, but I like the idea of the reoccurring images of circles, especially with the fingerprints. I just thought that was amazing. Like the thing that makes this screenplay so great, it works well as just a straight up detective story where it opens right in the middle of the story where the guy wakes up and he's trying to figure out what the hell is happening. So there's this great mystery. But even the screenplay itself, like the way they write in the visual motifs and stuff like the fact that the whole entire city, like for me, reminded me of like a rat's maze, right? And at the end of the maze is Shell Beach. And we are sort of like, again, put in the shoes of the main character because like him, we have no clue what the hell is going on. We have to piece it together as the movie progresses. And I really like that. That's what I love about detective stories done right. And I just love the actual, I mean, the set, right? Like the actual city, they constructed it on an actual studio lot. I think there was like 50 different sets, if that's the right terminology to use, on the actual studio lot. Like Kiefer Sutherland said he'd never been on a set that was that magnificent, that huge, that incredible. Like, I mean, you said it's 27 mil to make? I mean, the whole entire set changes every time the clock strikes 12, which, by the way, there isn't actually any time on the clock. So like, no. they, they they kind of just decide when it's like midnight, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I, the, the the sets are obviously they, they are fantastic. That There's also a lot of cool little model city sets that are that are that are done really well. I, I really miss that kind of filmmaking when you can see a whole city like that. You can tell it's a, a little miniature. But it, uh, it works really well. It's still solid, and it allows you to, to give a, a different kind of atmosphere than if it had been created CG. Yeah, and also, for a movie that takes place at night, and it's supposed to be dark, because, you know, it's called Dark City for a reason, it still does a really good job of showing you the world. It doesn't hide any flaws. Because, you know, a lot of times when you don't have a lot of money, and you can't really construct a set, that you want to construct. And so you have to sort of like hide it with shadows or quick camera cuts or in editing and post-production. I didn't feel that watching this movie. Like I felt that there was a lot of like open shots, a lot of wide shots. There was like a lot of the city that we actually see. We actually see the buildings reshaping. Like I, I just like, I don't understand how they did it. Like I know this was like 1998 and they started using a lot of CGI and so on and so forth. But Man, they had to build these sets, right? You had to sit there and try to figure out how you're going to build these sets and how you're going to reshape the whole entire city. It, it did work to their benefit that uh, it is literally in the script that this is like a cobbled together uh, mess of a city that's just like diff bits of different eras, different places, uh, different different histories or whatever. 
Um, so it is supposed to look kind of disjointed and weird, which probably helped uh, when they were assembling it. Just be like, oh, yeah, take a, p- a bit from that and a bit from that. And it's actually what we want. This movie came out when I was uh, 13, 12 or 13. And I was watching Siskel and Ebert every week. Um and so I geeked out. I was so excited to see this because it ended up being Roger Ebert's favorite movie of 1998. He did a commentary track for it. Um, and it was one of those, it was one of those early films where I was like, where I learned that you can make a great movie and it can be a total flop. Like people mm-hmm. could just not like it. Like it was the first movie I think where I really encountered that. And, and uh, babe too was another one of those that, that he loved that was really championed by a few people but like total disaster at the box office. Yeah. He loves Alex Perez. He's a fan of all of his movies, even I robot, but I think he's also a huge fan of Jennifer Connelly, who of course is like beautiful, but I mean, can we just quickly talk about the cast before we go to break? So first of all, Rufus Dewell, we talked about this before we started recording. He's an underrated actor. He's actually really good. He reminds me of Matthew McConaughey uh, in terms of like the way he looks. And if you go check out his internet movie database profile and look at his photos you'll understand why i say this so he's not only a good actor but he's a good looking actor and he's sexy and he just plays the part perfectly as john murdoch william hurts in this movie i thought it was one of his best performances he's great he, he's amazing Kiefer he's Sutherland, really good come on. Yeah. Kiefer, like growing up with Kiefer with the lost boys and stand by me like he was always the badass right he was always the guy who i hated and i watch him in this movie and he plays the bad guy but not really he's not the bad guy he's like he 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 betrays humanity as he says at the start of the film but then he ends up becoming like the hero technically he's the hero of the movie and jennifer Connolly, we've already spoken about her uh but just really quickly richard o'brien's in this movie and i love the names of the strangers like mr wall mr book like i just thought that it's it sounds maybe silly on paper but like watching it on on the screen especially with the way they look like even mr sleep the little kid i i just like love love the strangers I like that they're just named for random words. Like the alien showed up to showed up to Earth, f- figured out that individual creatures are like like it's actually easier if everyone has a name because then you can point to an individual, which they didn't understand because they have a collective consciousness. So they get there and they're just like, "Well, what should my name be?" I don't know. They call this a book. Uh, this is a hand. You're, you're I don't Mr. Know. Face. You're Mr. Yeah. Pants. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you're gonna be Miss Lamp. Um. <laughs> For the remainder of the podcast, I would like to be referred to as Mr. Keyboard. All right. My one last thing. I watched this movie twice. I watched it uh, you know, two nights in a row to make sure that I could try to pick out all the weird. I wanted to know if I could understand it better the second time around, or at least have my questions answered the second time around, which I could not. Um, but I have one question for you guys. Did you notice the drooping eyes in this movie? What is the deal with drooping eyes? You know what's so funny? In the original review of this movie, which I'm going to add on to the end of this podcast, Al Cretina <laughs> cracked the funniest joke about the eyes. Like, So, yeah, stick around because I could not stop laughing. I don't. I can't explain it. I definitely noticed Kiefer's drooping eye. It's a major part yes. of his performance. Very pronounced. But you'll also notice there are times when William Hurt has one and also when Rufus Sewell has them. It's not I all mean, the presumably time that's two, because but... the that's where the shots go in, right? I I don't know. I have no because idea. That, that is where the shots go in. Oh, they go in like right in your forehead. Yeah, but I no, I think they're going through the ocular cavity. I, so I think the no, idea is that is that like uh, repeated syringe, repeated thick, extensible syringes to the face give you a drooping eye. 
But then why does Sutherland have such a pronounced one? Because he doesn't get those shots. Because he was doing the most drugs on set. <laughs> no, his is, is so intentionally pronounced in some way. And I thought maybe it's because they do have a cut, a shot of him where he he must have got beaten up by them or something. He's all bloody. It's when they forced him to be their doctor and he had to wipe his own memories. And they're showing a shot of him and he's he's completely beaten to a pulp. He like, volunteered. He says at the beginning of the movie, he betrayed humanity that's that's the thing about the voiceover at the start of the film like a lot of people think it dumbs down the movie i think the voiceover actually explains a lot of things especially his character so again like when it comes to the director's cut it's great to have the additional 12 minutes but i don't understand why people hate the voiceover from the original cut i think it's fine and just really quickly his character they they took away all of his memories except for his knowledge of the mind like the his psych- psychologist uh, memories or whatever. And he does explain that in his little bit in the boat ride exposition. It still doesn't explain why his eye is so droopy and why everybody else... I think there's something going on there. I want to talk to Alex Proyas. I've got questions and I need answers. Also, I always forget Melissa George is in this movie playing me. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's an interesting cast, period. Um, what is the deal with the shoelace being untied? What is the deal with Jennifer Connelly being in this movie and Wrecking for Dream, which have similar endings? Oh, thank you. Every time I see that shot of uh, of Jennifer Connelly at the end of this film at uh, on the pier next to the new Shell Beach, I'm like, this is literally just a shot from Wrecking for a Dream, which came out, what, two years later? Yeah. Spooky. <laughs> like I said, right, it's one of those that... movies that's reaching out into the into the past and the future. Yeah, it definitely has a lot of that. And his commentary, he talks about a lot of his inspirations, too. Um, it's it's definitely worth a listen to his commentary. He knew the movie was in trouble, he said, when he was sitting in an aisle. or He, he, knew, he knows two guys across the aisle totally not being into the movie at all. And at that point, he knew that it was going to be too confusing for some people. I kind of went the opposite direction. I am fascinated by this movie, and I still don't understand what's going on with a lot of it. Or I want more answers, but... Um, Maybe that's because my imagination ran a little too wild with it. But I think it is one of the most imaginative. It's the kind of movie that I miss. and I, We don't get a ton of anymore. Uh, it's, it's the kind of movie that Hollywood could commit. Back then, a $27 million, $30 million budget was a medium-sized budget. Um, they could commit that kind of money to something completely bizarre. And uh, hopefully we still get those Patrick, movies in the future. We, we just got The Empty Man and you didn't like it. What's wrong with you? <laughs> no, I didn't say I hated it or anything. I was like, I found it very watchable, but uh, it didn't inspire my imagination as as much okay, as uh, as Dark City did. Um, yeah. With that, we should wrap things up. We'll go to our uh, our second half of the show. But before we do that, here's another clip from Dark City. First, there was darkness. Then came the strangers. They abducted us and brought us here. The city, everyone in it, is their experiment. They mix and match our memories as they see fit, trying to divine what makes us unique. One day, a man might be an inspector. The next, someone entirely different. When they want to study a murderer, for instance, they simply imprint one of their citizens with a new personality. Arrange a family for him, friends, an entire history even a lost wallet. Then they observe the results. Will a man, given the history of a killer, continue in that vein? 
Or are we, in fact, more than the mere sum of our memories? This business of you being a killer was an unhappy coincidence. You have had dozens of lives before now. You just happened to wake up while I was imprinting you with this one. Why are they doing all this? It is our capacity for individuality, our souls, that makes us different from them. They think they can find the human soul if they understand how our memories work. All they have are collective memories. They share one group mind. They're dying, you see. Their entire race is on the brink of extinction. All right, that was another clip from Dark City. We are at the portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions. We always like to start off with the most positive question. This one's going to be weird for me. I don't know how I'm going to answer this one because I have a very similar reaction to Empty Man. But, um, <laughs> Simon, what's your favorite scene from Dark City? <laughs> I think the best scene in Dark City is um, about 45 minutes in or maybe an hour in um, when we actually get to see them do a night's tuning while um, while John uh, Rufus Sowell's character, John Murdoch, is awake and lucid. Um, and it's not so much a scene as an element of that sequence uh, where um, we get this couple who is like a squabbling lower lower class you know, very you know coded as very like lower class working class couple uh just squabbling o- over stuff um the tuning begins they fall asleep and like they you know their their heads go into the cereal or whatever and we see their entire life get rearranged in a matter of i don't know 90 seconds and then we get that quick scene of them actually like having sitting down to dinner at their new massive table um, talking that with the the patriarch now, uh, talking about how he had to sack some uh, someone for lollygagging or something, and uh, yeah. it's just it's a wonderful sequence and just a, a great way to demonstrate the impact of their powers on these poor souls. That's the kind of scene that Christopher Nolan watches and he gets a heart on. Like that's to him like the greatest <laughs> thing ever made. <laughs> Oh man, I wonder like what they retain of their former personalities. I know they're given different memories, so they've gone from being blue collar to extremely wealthy. They've gone from a, a schlubby apartment to a, like a mansion type setting. This is clearly a penthouse or something massive. Um, but I, I would, I'd like to explore like how, did, would their relationship dynamic be roughly the same between because it is the same husband and wife, and would they keep their dynamic a little bit more like, or would it be completely different now that they've been given completely different backgrounds? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Rick, what's your favorite scene? I think the opening scene is by far my favorite scene. I think it grabs the attention of the viewer right away. I like opening in the middle of the story, starting the mystery right away, seeing the quick glimpse of the, the prostitute who's dead on the ground. with I believe there's a knife next to her body. He's confused. Like I said, he wakes up naked, confused. He is in the dark like us, the viewer, and I just love the editing and the pacing and the soundtrack and the music. It just is such a great way to open up a movie. Yeah, it's a good, really good mystery, obviously. That's a very classic noir type way of opening something up. I guess my favorite scene, then, if I pick another one, I'm going to go with the Kiefer Sutherland, kind of the end scene where he's they, they've captured John Murdoch, and John Murdoch's on that little that circle circular thing where he looks like the Vitruvius Man or whatever, and uh, a Vitruvian Man. 
And then they, they like keep shoveling wheels out in his little cage that they've put him in, which I still don't understand what that thing was. But he's like got this like mobile cage that he's in. I don't I don't know what it is. They can reanimate the dead, but apparently they need this specific guy to like insert a syringe. <laughs> yeah, no, but... I mean, it's because he's the only one who can read into the memories, so they it's... know what kind of memories they're injecting into people. Yeah, he understands the memories. He, he no, I know, but like, liquid. it's kind of silly that like they they trust him to do all this stuff, even though the he's, most like, important def- thing ever, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's you got you kind of just have to roll with that. They don't trust him. Like throughout the whole entire film, they 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 call him out on him, sort of not you know not being trustful. Yeah, but what are they going to do? Kill him? Like, that's going to end their experiment completely. They can't... He's sort of got job security, I would say, because nobody else knows how to do it. Um, but yeah, I love the the thing where he injects John Murdoch, and then he's in the memories. I, I really like that for some reason. It rushes by really quick, but it's kind of a... It's a cool, cool little piece, and I like how the scene builds up to that. It also does a great job of, like... Um... I, I, the, all those shots of Kiefer Sutherland in various outfits, like friendly local <laughs> cop, friendly local ice cream salesman, friendly local firefighter. For some reason, the fact that it's Kiefer Sutherland makes it really funny to me. <laughs> I know it's his face. Cause you always think of him as being this deep down. He's this evil bad guy um, or a thug at least. If nothing like Jack else. Bauer, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. So, if there's one thing that you could change, let's, I always start with Simon. I'm gonna I'm gonna switch it up here a little bit. If you, there's one thing, Rick, that you could change about Dark City, what would it be? Yeah, there's one scene I do not like. It's the scene when Jennifer Connelly's character goes to the waterfront. So Emma goes to the waterfront, and Mister Hand appears. Mm-hmm. And so they have this like conversation and she's like, oh, that's what my husband said to me. Oh, this is where I met my husband. And he's like, this is where I met my wife. I can't stand that scene. I hate the exchange. I hate the dialogue. I, I just hate that scene. It's the one really? scene in the film that I would remove. Really? Is, can you point to anything like specifically as to why you hate it? Because I actually like that scene. I don't know. I feel like it serves no purpose. Like telling us the audience that he's reliving the memories of John Murdoch. We, we already know that. And then he, this creepy guy pops up out of nowhere, has this weird conversation with her. It it just, I don't know. I, I just felt it didn't do anything for a movie. <laughs> but that's the sort of what that scene reinforces that he, those memories are so interchangeable that he just simply has them. She values them so much that she's going and sitting there, right? That she's thinking about this. She's thinking about her relationship and everything that's happening and how things that's are breaking great, down. But we didn't need the conversation. We could have just had a shot of her at the waterfront and him staring at her at the waterfront, and that would have said enough. I think that. But he's, that... he's the reminder that everything that she's feeling, that she feels so intensely, you know, is important important is fake because he's got it too and he's using it as like a game you're asking me what i would change that's what i would change i would not i would show it visually and not use the dialogue like i think i think the idea behind the scene works i just think it would have been better without the dialogue (laughs) okay um all right simon what about you would you change so i haven't watched the theatrical cut recently but i did notice watching this director's cut and it may have even been the first time I saw the director's cut, to be honest. Um, I was watching the scenes of, of Jennifer Connelly uh, singing and I thought, boy, a, that really does sound like it's Jennifer Connelly and B Jennifer Connelly is not noted for her singing ability. 
Um, <laughs> I I think she's a really great actor. She's been in a lot of great movies, uh, even so, and even some iconic roles. But in the original theatrical cut, they dub over her singing voice with presumably a real singer. And then they restored her voice for the director's cut because I guess most directors have that weird hang up about like, oh, if it's real, then it's better, which is bullshit, especially for musical sequences. Stick with the pros, people. Bring back the original vocalist. That is why I preferred the theatrical cut, because first of all, Anita Kelsey is the singer in that version because she can't sing very well, Jennifer O'Connelly. And that's the thing. Like People think that just because it's a director's cut, it's going to be a better cut because it's what the director wanted. A lot of times the, the director's cut is not a better film. I don't understand how 12 additional minutes makes it such a better film when they remove the opening voiceover and then, like you said, Simon, they replace the singing, which is just not great. I don't know. The, I mean, I, I read through a list of the stuff that they added or changed. The one the, the one thing that probably is good is that um, Prius wasn't super happy with the tuning effects in the theatrical cut. Just like that that wavy effect of, of, of you know, what it looks like when their minds are are doing telekinetic junk. Um, so he I guess he enhanced or replaced some of those effects. I haven't done an AB one against the other, but I definitely remember those effects being pretty 1997 looking <laughs> the yeah, last time yeah, I saw them. They were so. slightly corny when you when you first see them. They're a little bit better now. I yeah, like the additional that's... scenes that are thrown in. I think there's there's some additional moments with the Bumstead, the detective William Hurt's character, and Jennifer Connelly's Emma. Um, any little character, but I think I've expressed this clearly enough. Any little character moments, I, I'm like starving for in this movie. So I'll take any extra footage. Um, the movie moves at such a breakneck pace for me that I'm fine with that additional 12 minutes I like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's stuff like, I think that whole scene with uh, Jennifer Connelly finding the, um, that, which you wouldn't have seen in the theatrical cut, Ricky, there's a whole scene of her finding uh, that Melissa George's uh, sex worker who's been killed has a daughter who's hiding under the bed who they then find. And she's made a drawing of the, wa- you know, and it's fine. It's like, I, I, I guess it adds something, but I, I wouldn't miss it if it were gone. No, but what it it's not necessarily the content of what's in that, it's but it helps the pacing, I think. Having those things be just slightly longer for me helps the pacing of Dark City. Because otherwise, like I say, it does move so fast you you can be running to catch up sometimes. Um the, the those those 11 12 minutes for me, it, it, there's nothing in there that you're going to miss story-wise really. And even though I might like some of the little character moments, none of them are important, but I do feel that it does help slow it down just a little bit uh, even though it is still a very quick movie uh as far as me i mean i, I don't know i would want more answers i can't think of anything that i take <laughs> out of this movie because I, I don't i think that it already moves really really quickly um and i don't think there's there's a like a weird dub you were you, you had mentioned those that couple so remember when they were the blue collar couple I yeah. feel like their voices got dubbed in a very odd way when they're the blue collar couple, and then when you hear them as the the rich couple, they sound more natural and recorded on set or whatever. I don't know. I would. <laughs> that's just a little technical thing. I would fix that dubbing because it sounds terrible. Uh, it distracts me every time I hear it because it doesn't feel like it's even their real voices. The Jennifer Connelly thing. I don't know. I there's something about her. She's not a very good singer, but it kind of fits with that character because she's not a singer like we don't know what she really is in real life and so for me it works 
And she's got a husky enough voice that she can pull off the that sort of nightclub thing. But but yeah, it's not great. But it kind of fits. I don't know. It might be better that way. It from a story perspective, maybe from an audience perspective, it's better to actually hear a good singer. But from a story perspective, doesn't it make more sense maybe to have somebody who like they don't the aliens don't care whether she can sing or not, and it might make more sense to have somebody who can't sing. I don't know. That's a tough one. Uh, all right, <laughs> let's move on here. Uh, Rick, who do you see as the MVP of Dark City? The editor. I actually think that this movie works because of the editing. He controls the pacing. He decides what shots go where, especially because the movie is so visually uh, reliant on the special effects and they're kind of somewhat complex. And I'm assuming most of it was done in post-production. This movie, from my understanding, has so many cuts that it cuts every 1.8 seconds or every two seconds that there is a cut. Now, normally that's not necessarily a good thing. Robert Rodriguez, for example, does this a lot in his earlier films like Desperado and El Mariachi. But it just really just kicks the movie off in full gear and lets us, the viewers, just become so invested in the film. I just I know it's weird picking an editor, but I'm picking the editor this time. Uh, The editor is Dove Heening, by the way, and really interesting um, CV because he started out in the 60s and this ended up being his next to last uh, film, I guess, before he retired. Uh, the last one being Collateral Damage. Oh. <laughs> and he edited Manhunter bang, and a bunch of other Michael Mann movies, so he knows his shit. He, he, he's edited some of my favorite films of the era, like Thief, Manhunter, Dark City. He's a good pick because this movie may have, for all we know, this movie was saved in editing. I mean, I don't know. It's got great production design and obviously, you know, Price is good at Put, you know, placing his camera, but the editing of this movie, the cross-cutting that happens between scenes really affects how this movie plays out. Mm-hmm. I think this movie could have been a three-hour film with the wrong editor. I think it could have also been a complete incoherent mess with the wrong editor. I, I, I really do think the editor just did an incredible job. It could have been extremely boring. Extremely boring with the wrong editor, but I feel like this. This is where I have a problem. I know that some people, and not everybody's going to like this movie because it can be. Again, I'm going to say that it's confusing, but <laughs> but it moves so quickly that I can't see people not getting engaged in it because it does kind of sweep you up right away. Um, and and because it moves so quickly, it helps me personally just not focus on the details of the plot in terms of trying to understand how it works because that could take me out of the movie. That's something that I can think of after the movie, like now when we have the conversation about yeah. the film. But while watching the film, you don't want to be taken out as a viewer. You want to kind of just soak in, into the movie and just like let it, you know, just like be passive and watch it and experience the movie. And yeah. it has like, I think I said this in the original review, in terms of like atmosphere, like it's so thick and it has this unique atmosphere. Like, and I think it's because of the editing because he also has to match the shots with the soundtrack, which by the way is brilliant and amazing. Or maybe it's, maybe it's in reverse. Maybe they compose the soundtrack and the score afterward. I don't know. I'm not sure either, but, um, but it does work. Simon, what about you? Who's your pick? Uh, well, my runner up would actually be Trevor Jones who did the, who did the music. The, the I think his score is, probably uh the main reason the climax even works 
Um, but we can maybe talk about that later. But actually, my MVP is going to be someone who really stood out for me on rewatch, who I'd never really thought about before. And that's Richard O'Brien, who plays uh, Mr. Hand. And I think in a movie that has a lot of great line readings, I think the section of the movie after he injects himself with Murdoch's, what, what were going to be Murdoch's memories, and then he kind of walks around as like a hybrid person slash stranger who like has memories, but has this like weird askew take on, on their significance is really great. Uh, like my favorite line reading in the movie is um, when he figures out that Rufus Sowell, John Murdoch has, has gone over to see his supposed uncle Carl. Um, and he says something like uncle Carl haven't seen you in so long. And there's just there's no warmth or it's like it's like a it's like a parody of a person. And I just I love that performance so much. He's so good. He's repeating the things that he can remember somebody saying at one point in time. And yeah, he doesn't quite understand the significance of them. He's still connected to the collective memory. So here he's got his own individual memories. And yet he's still also connected to the collective. Yeah, it's a position that must be a. Apparently the the role was like more. I mean, he was attached to the role pretty early, and uh, Proyas had had him in mind for this kind of role. And I just think it's brilliant, brilliant casting. I mean, this is the guy who this is fucking riffraff from Rocky Horror, people. Well, you know, you know, Mister Sleep is also from Rocky Horror. The two kids, the twins that play Mister Sleep. Oh, I didn't know that. That's funny. So you like your Rocky Horror? Yes. You like riffraff? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> those cre- creepy little weirdo kids um <laughs> i never understood what that kid was there for why is that kid going along with them every time i guess it was just some dead kid by the way like, well, yeah exactly it's about. just it's just a, another one of these another one of these aliens <laughs> who happens to be in a kid body so actually it's one of the few movies where it makes sense for there to be an evil kid because it's not really an evil kid no he's just a regular alien he just chose the short body for some reason um <laughs> <laughs> I really wish I, I actually go... I, I, I want to go back and say if there's one thing I could change I would add a shot of uh, in that scene when the kid is like stabbing his hand or biting his hand to like get him off the building uh, yeah. I would have I would have found some way to fling that fucking kid out of the window <laughs> and into the oncoming building um, that would have ruled <laughs> and it could have been totally justified because it wasn't really a kid exactly um... <laughs> Well, I was going to pick the editor too, but I guess if I'm going to go with a sort of a second runner up for me, the the other thing that I'm always drawn to in this movie is William Hurt's Bumstead. Uh, You can tell that the movie was originally written with Bumstead being sort of the main character as a detective movie, because he seems to focus on this detective who then just sort of unceremoniously gets killed off. I guess it's not unceremoniously. He does get to float off into space and die and they linger on him a little bit. But I, I love that character. And that's that's the character to me that r- almost represents the audience maybe even more than the the Rufus than John Murdoch because he kind of thinks he has a grip on things, but he starts to as as things weird things pop up, he starts to question everything. And I think sometimes when you're watching a movie like this, you can think that you have a handle. I like to think that I have a handle on these things. And for me, I'm I'm bumsted more than John Murdoch. I'm like, what the hell? Is... I thought I knew what I was, was going on here, but now I don't know what's going on at all. And I'm now I'm just going to completely join sides with Murdoch. Now I, now I'm busting open a wall at the end because I have no idea what the hell is happening. 
Um, I know we're running long, but I have to quickly mention the cinematographer since nobody mentioned him. So this dude has worked on, I think, Dark City, The Crow, Romeo's Bleeding, like The Martian, Prometheus. Like he's worked on some like really cool sci-fi films in terms of like the way it looks. It's definitely a good-looking movie, but is it a great movie? The Howard Hawks test, guys. Does it pass? Oh, right. Three great scenes and no bad ones. So can we change this so it becomes the Ricky D test? Because I don't think <laughs> it should be three great scenes. I think it should be three iconic scenes in terms of like, for whatever reason, people like when you show someone a still image, like a screenshot of that specific scene, people right away know it's the movie. Well, I mean, that could be the difference between an iconic movie and just a great movie, you know? Like a great movie, yeah, there are movies that are going to live forever, and then there are movies that were just really, really good. Like, they were great movies, but they might not live forever. Who knows? Um, it all depends. Like, is this going to be an iconic movie? We could go with that. Is the, How iconic is this movie? Uh, if we want to call it a great movie, the problem here is that I think it has one bad scene. I already talked about it. I just felt like that scene didn't work for me personally, but that's just me. Mm-hmm. Like, if you guys don't think it's a bad scene, then I guess it's not a bad scene. But this movie is pretty much like the reason why Christopher Nolan exists. <laughs> for better or worse, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, how could you not call it a great movie when it's one of the best movies of 1998, one of the best movies of the 90s, and has inspired so many filmmakers moving forward like Christopher Nolan? And and because of movies like this, we have movies like Memento, The Matrix, so on, so forth, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to say, based on the Howard Hawks test, which means there's three great scenes and no bad scenes, even though I can nitpick about that specific scene on the waterfront, I will say yes, because I think it has three great scenes. I mean, I, I, I think uh, we can, we can, yeah, we can, we can quibble about the definition of, of great or iconic. I think the problem with iconic is that, um, you know, I, iconography is in part, in part a function of popularity. You know, what gets to be iconic is based on who gets to see it. Um and clearly a movie like, I mean, Dark City now, I think, has a has a very solid cult following. I'm sure lots of people know what it is. And like, it's certainly not the kind of uh, it, it, it. Its stock is considerably higher than it was when it came out. I think we can agree. But uh, what gets to be iconic? I don't know. That being said, I think it passes the Howard Hawks test. And there's not just like three great scenes. There is. Uh, I would say that's because it's not really to me a movie of discrete scenes that much because as Patrick yes. said, there's so much there's so much intercutting on multiple planes of uh, of action basically all the time, uh, but there, it is a, a a near constant barrage of just incredible images, um, even one that I'd forgotten about and then you reminded me of um, Patrick was uh, William Hurt's character when he gets flung into space to die, presumably horribly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and he finally sees, and we finally see the city in full. Uh, the truth. From space. The truth yep. at the cost of your life. Uh, like that was, that is a beautifully executed sequence. Yeah. In terms of, um, of it having a, a strong following and people loving the movie now and, 2021 as opposed to 1998 when it was released the last negative review published according to rotten tomatoes of this movie was from owen gleberman from ew and i'm not a big fan of him as a critic he's okay i guess so that was in 2011 
there hasn't been a negative review published of Dark City, and there's 85 reviews uh, since 2011, so that's 10 years. What the hell is More Owen? like we, Owen we were... Glibman. <laughs> got him. <laughs> well, when you write for EW, you got to be. Um, yeah, I was going to say, there aren't... It's hard for me to think of this movie as having like distinct scenes. There are things that barely qualify as scenes, but uh, this is another one of those movies where it's just a, like you said, it's a barrage of stuff. It's moving along so quickly, but there are moments that I'll never forget. So it's got a lot of those great moments. They're just little line readings. Again, Bumstead, I find to be a character I'm just really drawn to and how William Hurt reads each one of his lines. I just find it pretty interesting. World weary, but also wrote in some ways yeah by, by the way this barely qualifies as a review mr owen because it's only 309 words oh man you've like, got that's served, mr glibman <laughs> um <laughs> all right so is there an audience for dark city going forward then obviously not owen glieberman but uh, actually i think if this movie was released in 2021 it would be a box office sensation do you think so? Uh, to, to the extent that we still have box office sensations, yes. Well, the way people love Christopher Nolan movies, come on, like for sure. Man, do you think it's it's very different? Nolan feeds his stuff to people in very different ways, though. He creates these spectacle scenes that he then puts a lot of mumbo jumbo around. I don't think Dark City, even though I think it has stuff that's just absolutely gorgeous, I don't believe it contains spectacle as much. Yeah. You market this movie in a way where you hide the fact that it was made in 1998. You make it seem like a, a brand new movie. You re-release it in the cinemas in July of this year when the pandemic calms down everyone gets their freaking vaccines and stuff, right? People are going to flock to this movie, and it's going to make like $300 billion. $300 billion, tell me. <laughs> we're, we're business geniuses, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I... I still think that there'll be, I think people will be lucky. People get confused with Christopher Nolan movies, obviously. Um, I don't know, man. I just don't think that it's got, he still makes audience friendly stuff with, with big stars that, that everybody knows. I mean, think about it. You put in the trailer, Christopher Nolan presents. He's, <laughs> he's like a producer. Boom. Which, Everyone thinks he directed the movie. He would totally do. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> They could actually could just do one... this. People's memories are so short that they could literally just re-release Dark City and oh, just guaranteed. say a Christopher Nolan film. I, I would say like 75% of the audience would have no idea. No there idea that it wasn't a Boom. Christopher Nolan movie. Um, <laughs> damn. It saves a lot of money. You don't have to remake the damn movie. Yeah, I'm amazed that's true. studios aren't already doing this more. To be, like I know that like Avatar just got re-released. But uh, let's just start re-releasing a bunch of movies from the 90s and like early 2000s. Who's going to notice? Well, I mean, you mean as far as just putting them into theaters? Our theaters have been doing that here for, for a while now because they've had no new movies. So, yeah, you can go see Back to the Future or whatever. Like, they'll be, they're, they're playing all sorts of stuff from all different, uh, many decades. I, I wonder if, a, if, if Hollywood would get on board with doing a remake of a movie like this, trying to do it oh, again. Oh, please, no. But simply because they were movies that didn't make a lot of money they were considered great by a lot of critics but they didn't make any money so why not try it again i don't know all right well we should probably cut things end things here so that we don't run over 100 minutes um guys simon where can we find you online 
Uh, I'm on Letterboxd at uh, Sucker Howl, I think. All right. And I have started writing again. So you're going to see some movie reviews and other stuff come from uh, me up at Goombastomp.com or Tilt Magazine. Um, Rick, where can people find this podcast? You can head over to SortedCinema.com and it will show you the archive for every single podcast that's currently uploaded to the website, of which I think starts at episode 500 and on. The previous 500 episodes I randomly release on the feed and on YouTube every so often. And of course, you can listen to the podcast on Amazon, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, Listen Note, iHeartRadio, Pandora. The easy way to remember is sortedcinema.com. All right. Well, we will be back next week, and uh, we'll see you then. What is to be done? This man is dangerous. It is said he is able to cue. Impossible. We have seen it with our own eyes. On occasion, the imprinting does not take. They behave erratically when they awaken. We find them wandering like lost children. But this one was different, yes? What has the doctor to say about this? He has failed to report in. And Mr. Quick? No more, Mr. Quick. Mr. Quick, dead. Yes. Poor, poor Mr. Quick. Mr. Book, does he know? Should we not know, Mr. Hand? We had hoped to learn more before sharing with you. We can know nothing until we possess him. Mr. Knight, you will take the East. Mr. Face, you the West. Mr. Glove, the South. Mr. Shade, the North. We must have this man. With 1998's Dark City, Alex Proyas attempted an ambitious mix of film noir, science fiction, and horror. The story of a man whose lost memories bring him into conflict with the Strangers, a mysterious group of maggot-looking fellows in latex trench coats. The film was a box office disappointment, unfortunately. Uh, Now, I saw this film when it first came out uh, in theaters, and I remember... I was young at the time, but I remember being uh, disappointed. I remember liking it a lot, but being very disappointed in the ending. However, I've since seen the the Blu-ray director's cut, and uh, my my feelings are, are much more positive about the film now. Simon, uh, is this the first time you've seen the film? No, I actually saw the film quite a few years ago when I was in high school. I I still have not seen the director's cut, mm-hmm. which I understand there's about 11, 12 minutes of new footage. Did you say you were in high school last year? No, the last time I saw it, I said, and I saw it oh, again. Okay. I thought now. You but anyway, I, I I haven't seen the director's cut yet. Um, I'm so jealous you saw the director's cut. Damn. So uh, maybe you, you could regale us with the differences. Well, I I, I, I can't really it. because I, I I saw the I saw it in 1998 the original version and I just saw the director's right. cut again. So I, I don't know what the differences are. I I do know that I like the film a lot better now now that I've seen the, the director's cut. How did you not like it the first time you saw I it? I did I did like it. I just I was really disappointed in the ending. I felt like it's it's I think I thought it was a fantastic film that turned into a mediocre video game at the end when they start fighting with mind powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'll back you up on that, but I still think that. Regardless, the film's incredible. I mean, frame by frame, this film just has some of the best atmosphere in any film in the 90s. No, hands I, yeah. down. Hands hands down, yeah. And I think also the movie contradicts the idea that Preyas isn't good with actors because here he's got a he's got a fine cast and they and they do a pretty good job. Arguably, some of the actors don't have much to do, like Jennifer Connelly, whose, whose job is basically to walk around being... <clears throat> 
you know, being Isabella mem- Rossellini in Blue with, Velvet. Actually, yeah, exactly. Uh, not getting to do much, but Kiefer Sutherland is great here, and he's often not very good. Yeah, but he's always great in these kind of dark uh, science fiction slash horror films. Mm-hmm. You know, even in a film like Flatliners, he's pretty cool. Yeah, he's got uh, he's got to get something twisted. For even really in Lost succeed. Boys, I mean, he's he's still pretty cool in Lost Boys. So. Well, I like here that he's cast as this sort of shirking man child instead of this big, you know, mm-hmm, booming mm-hmm. Uh, presence. Which that's it's a nice change mm-hmm. of pace, and I really like Rufus Sowell in a in a lead role. It's kind of it's kind of too bad that he doesn't get to do that very often. I, I still think the star of the movie is the uh, I guess whoever is involved in the cinematography and the art direction. I mm-hmm. think it's just stunning, and it has so many references to movies like Fritz Lang's Metropolis, Blade Runner, Brazil, uh, Nosferatu, City of Lost yeah. Children, any film by Jeanette. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's yeah, it's great, and I just love the German expressionism in it and. Once again, the mood, atmosphere, and mm-hmm. it's it's a detective story. Let's not forget, it's a yeah, film noir. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a film noir. It's it's. I mean, for people who haven't seen the film, it's it's the most bizarre film noir you've ever seen. Uh, Rufus Sewell uh, plays a guy who wakes up in a bathtub with no memories, and uh, he, w- w- it, throughout the course of investigations, it, he finds out that he's a suspect in a series of prostitute slaying. Well, he wakes up with a dead prostitute next to him. Right, right. I forget that because that happens to me very often. I sort of blends into the background for me but kind yeah, of he, like Barton Fink doesn't know if he killed the prostitute or not exactly and then he just he's li- wandering around the city where there's n- there's never any daylight the sun never rises uh, he's he's seen these strange uh, creatures that uh, Rick as you suggested that strangers they, they, they're called the strangers mm-hmm. they look exactly like uh, a German expressionist villain in a, in, a, in a leather jacket completely bald yeah horrifying looking and then Kiefer Sutherland is his, allegedly his psychiatrist who's this strange kind of mutant little fellow with a limp and a bum eye actually a lot of the people in this movie have lazy eyes it's weird yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's like watching <laughs> a, a play put on by kids with fetal alcohol syndrome it's, it's really off-putting at times but <laughs> And then it just it just it goes. There's aliens, and or maybe alien. I don't know what's going on by the end of the film, but it's it's so bizarre, it's so strange, and yet at its heart, it's a detective story. Yeah, and yeah. I li- I really like the strangers and like like I, going back to the costumes and their long trench coats and the uh, the wide brimmed hats that they wear, and they're all bald once again, and they're the, the pale white makeup, and they're just really creepy. And they got they have this one little kid who's oh, like yes. he's like I, I'm assuming he's a kid and not just a, a man that's small. Like not like a midget, but like sort of like a midget. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Freak. Uh, <laughs> and let's not let's not let's not like confuse our audience. This is not one of those films that suffer from the uh, style over substance. There's a lot going on in the screenplay, mm-hmm. and uh, it's intelligent and it's mind challenging and uh, it's really well written for an Alex Proyas film. <laughs> it really makes me think. Uh, and, and I was I was only half joking when I said that uh, Jennifer Connelly is. Isabella Rossellini and Blue Velvet. It feels like a like a David Lynch sci-fi film. It feels mm-hmm. a lot like it's got the mood oh, yeah. of Mulholland Drive, but it's darker, it's grittier, it's 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 grimier. It's a it's a really it's a really great picture. I suppose the main difference is that it actually posits an answer to all the mysteries mm-hmm. at the end of the film, which which will inevitably dis- be disappointing to some. Maybe that's the reaction I had oh. when I originally but, saw it. But you know what I like about it though is that it doesn't spell everything out for its audience. Like the clues are there. It's you know it's not too hard to figure out what it's about. But it doesn't it, it doesn't take its audience for granted. It doesn't mm-hmm. hit you over the head with it. It doesn't think that its audience is stupid. You know, it kind of lets you somewhat figure out most of it. I mean, aside from maybe the ending, for a good chunk of the film, you have to kind of piece it together by yourself. And I really appreciate mm-hmm. that. Another thing I like is that even though the movie takes place entirely at night. It's never as suffocating, or it, it it doesn't revel in in the in the darkness as much as say the crow does. Mm-hmm. It's actually got a little bit of levity to it here and there, some dark humor. 
Uh, it's it's not completely gloom and doom. And it has Richard O'Brien in in one of his least annoying performances. Uh, which one's he? He's the like Mr. Hands, maybe. Mr. Hands, yeah. yes. Yeah. Which, uh, for those of you who hang out on the internet way too much, is, is not what you're thinking of. There's there's no horse sodomy uh, in the film. Okay. And uh, but we just but he, don't have to talk about that right now. I want to make it clear this is the podcast <laughs> most of the time, right? These kids are hanging out on the interwebs and they're looking at their videos. We're not reviewing the movie Zoo right now. No, Mr. Hands. Anyway, whatever. The point is Richard O'Brien, who was in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since then has been nothing but a really, really strange man showing up in films being incredibly creepy. He is also incredibly creepy here, but he's got a role that, that really uh, that's predicated on that. So it works really well for the film. He's the, he's the main uh, stranger, I guess. Not the, not the boss man, mm-hmm. Mr. Book, but he's the stranger that, that menaces Rufus Sewell most frequently. Right. Now, the ongoing themes of the film is that it plays on thought control, the uh, altering of reality and how important memories are to an individual and um, a lot more. So it's it's a little bit more than just a straight-up detective story. Like we said, it is a science fiction film. If anyone out there likes, say, Brazil, City of Lost Children, Blade Runner, what else can we throw in there? Well, also uh, Kafka, which we Kafka, talked about. Kafka, yes, Kafka. This, this to me is a far superior mm-hmm. version yeah. of, 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 of a blend of noir and so sci-fi. If any of that interests you, then you got to see Dark City. It is honestly one of the best films that came out in the 90s. Hands down, I really believe that. Like, I think it's one of the best science fiction films of the 90s, one of the best films of the 90s. If you haven't seen it, if there's one movie to watch out of this hour, it is Dark City. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And having seen the, the Blu-ray, uh, the, the director's cut, it looks absolutely fantastic and really changed my mind. I liked, the, I liked the film before. Now I love the film. I want to go back to what you said about how he creates a world of his own. And the city, it looks like a 40s style like New York City. And the way uh, they're somewhat dressed could be in the 50s. But yet the automobiles can be of the 60s. It's not really ever sure as to mm-hmm. you know what decade it belongs in. But I like that about it. And it really, like, it, 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 at, some time, at some points, even like the way he, he makes, I think Detroit's city was used to film The Crow. It still feels like a world of its own. And, mm-hmm. that, and I, I think I'm going to go back on what Al says, that Alex Proyas should stick to making movies in some kind of you know, different reality, uh, another planet that's somewhat similar to Earth, you know, a parallel planet. And I think that's what he does really great. And, you know, we always come back to the idea of digital versus practical effects. And there are some dodgy digital effects here in the yeah. film. But there are there are also a lot of really nice practical effects. I especially love the movement of the buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was great. Well, I think that uh, it had a lower budget. Uh, I mean, less of a budget than Knowing. So, I mean, he did a lot more with Dark City than he did with Knowing. Definitely. We also have missed the opportunity to make a large number of Matrix jokes here because this film oh, yeah. came out the year before The Matrix, I guess, and is so similar that you, you, you have the, if you're not paying attention, if you drift off, you, you can forget well, you're watching Dark City and think you're watching The Matrix. It's, it's like I a think clockwork it, I think Matrix without the CGI, without the computers. Mm-hmm. It's like I a hand-cranked it, <laughs> sci-fi movie. But it should be mentioned that I think this is a far superior film to The Matrix. 